ago, I think I was here, but I'm Terry Dorsett from the Baptist Convention in New England, and before we get to the scripture this morning, I just want to give you a little bit of a mission report from the Baptist Convention of New England, which your church is a part of. You know, we're now 360 churches strong in all six New England states. Every weekend, we worship in 19 different languages, which I think is pretty exciting. Uh, in fact, 40% of our churches worship in a language other than English, and if our trend for our ethnic work continues in about 10 years, us English speakers will actually be the minority in the Baptist Convention of New England. Uh, so I don't know if that's good or bad. I'll let you guys decide that. I think it's pretty exciting myself. Uh, what do we do at the Baptist Convention? Well, last year, we trained 800 lay people from 90 churches how to lead various ministries in the church. We also trained 2,200 people from our churches in how to do various types of evangelistic ministry, and that resulted, actually I have an incorrect number here, it says it resulted in nearly 1,700 baptisms. When we finally got all the results, it was 1,824 baptisms, which was a new record for us. So we saw more people come to faith in Christ last year than ever before in our history. I think that's something to rejoice over, amen? We also minister on 30 college campuses around New England. Last year, 9,000 different students came to one of our events, which we thought was pretty cool. Uh, we had a bunch of events all over the place, but if you added them all up together, 9,000 students came. We also have 1,400 teenagers who are involved in five different youth events that we sponsor. And so it's pretty exciting to see the next generation coming and responding to the gospel. If anyone tells you uh, that the, the young people are no longer interested in Jesus, they're wrong. Just tell them that we have statistics in New England that prove the opposite, that many young people are interested in Jesus. Uh, last year, 2017, we planted 23 churches, which we're very excited. Now, this church is a, a very historic church. You guys have been around longer than the United States of America. I don't know why I'm telling you that, but you know that already, all right? But we also have to have new churches in communities that are underserved. So last year, we started 23 of those. We're currently supporting 70 church plants around New England. Uh, many of those are ethnic church plants reaching immigrant communities of people who are moving here, but 70 different church plants that we're supporting uh, financially. Last year, we also passed a little over, four, or right at $400,000 on from the churches to various uh, agencies within our denomination, uh, seminaries, mission and groups, and all that kind of stuff. I think that's pretty good when you think about uh, churches in New England that oftentimes their budgets are tight to think that in addition to supporting everything they had to support themselves that they gave another 400000 on top of that to support missionaries and to support theological education for 22,000 students. I think that's pretty cool. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, this was all possible. All of this that we did is possible because of the prayers, uh, the volunteering, and the financial gifts from churches like yours uh, through a mission system that we call the Cooperative Program. In 1925, the cooperative program was born. Tens of thousands of Baptist churches used it as a way to support missions around the world, and it's shown to be one of the most efficient and effective mission-giving systems in American history. Your church is a part of that. Thank you so much for that, so thank you for your giving. Well, that's enough of a commercial. We're done with the commercial, right? <laughs> but I do think it's important for you to hear what's going on at the Baptist Convention because you are a part of it. Uh, our scripture this morning is going to be Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. And the title of the sermon is, How to Reach a Community for Christ. Uh, or you might say, how are we going to reach our community, our region, uh, New England, however you want to say it. How are we going to reach people for Christ here in New England? And of course, we want to look to the scriptures for that answer. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon a man who had a serious skin disease, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive fragrant oil. 
She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be in memory of her. Would you take just a moment to bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, I pray for this scripture that we have just read, that your Holy Spirit might use it to quicken our own spirits, that we might learn the message that you have for us in these moments. Lord, I pray that you might remove every distraction, everything that might keep us from hearing your message in these moments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at verse 6, the scene opens up with Jesus, who is in Bethany at the house of Simon, a man who has a serious skin disease. Other versions of the Bible say that he was a leper, that he had leprosy. So let me sort of give you the scene. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's actually his final trip to Jerusalem. He knows, now I'm not sure the other people know, but he knows that he is on his way to Jerusalem where he will eventually be, of course, uh, captured by the enemy. He will be beaten. He will be tried uh, in, in a sort of a mock trial. He will be crucified on the cross. And of course, he knows that he will then rise from the dead. Uh, it's the whole gospel story. It's like he knows that it's coming up. This is sort of the, the critical sort of week of his life as he winds it all down and as he moves toward the end. And on his way to Jerusalem, he decides to take this little side trip, a little field trip, over to Bethany. Bethany was about five miles away from Jerusalem, and there he goes to visit this man named Simon. Now, Simon had leprosy, or in this particular scripture, it calls it a serious skin disease. Leprosy was, of course, a very uh, terrible disease. It's still a bad disease, but today we have medicines to treat it. Back then, they did not have medicines to treat it. And anyone who had leprosy was ceremonially unclean, according to Jewish, religious, and social rules. And when we say ceremonially unclean, I'm not sure we quite grasp what that means, because we don't really have anything like that in our culture. Uh, but in their culture, what that meant was if a person had leprosy and they were walking down the street and they saw someone else walking down the street, they actually had to shout out three times, unclean, 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 so that you could walk a different direction and not be near them. How would you like that to be your life? Where you had to walk around shouting out to people whatever it is, this thing about you, uh, that somehow people thought made you less than worthy to stand next to or to eat with or to be with. with. Now, Jewish people did not go to the homes of lepers. They did not cross them on the street. They did not wave at them. They did not shake their hand. They definitely did not go to their home. Jesus was Jewish, and so he should have not been at the home of a leper. He just shouldn't have been according to their sort of traditional way of living. And yet, there Jesus is, at the home of Simon the leper that somehow Jesus thought that even though this was his final week, that he's headed to Jerusalem and he's going he's to die for our sins, he thought it was so important to take this side trip and go to the home of Simon the leper, that he knew that many people would not think he should be there. Why would Jesus do that? Jesus would do that because he cared far more about people than when he cared about his own reputation. Oh, he knew there would be people who would whisper and talk about it, but he didn't care. He cared about Simon the leper. 
And he cared about many people. We read the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament are stories of Jesus talking to people that he really shouldn't have been talking to. And yet he did. He talked to them, and in the process of talking to them, their lives were transformed by the gospel. Jesus often spent time with people who had serious issues. Remember the woman at the well? Uh, remember, remember that story? Five times she had been married, and now she was living with someone to whom she wasn't married, and she was a Samaritan woman, which Jewish men didn't talk to. And yet Jesus talked to her. Uh, the, remember, remember the woman who was caught in adultery? I've always thought it was interesting that we say it's the woman who was caught in adultery. If we caught her in adultery, that, doesn't that mean we also caught the man in adultery? But somehow he's not in the story. I've never quite, they hadn't had their Me Too moment yet in the New Testament. Uh, but you know, they had this woman caught in adultery and, and Jesus changed her life. It's interesting that when you read the New Testament, Jesus oftentimes spent time with people who had serious issues. And in the process, he transformed their lives because he was a transforming piece of their culture. You know, as we think about reaching our community for Christ, as we think about reaching Haverhill, Massachusetts for Christ, as we think about reaching New England for Christ, we are going to have to learn to spend some time with people who have serious issues, and we're going to have to watch them be transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was chatting with a pastor, uh, oh, it's probably about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, who's in a very uh, a difficult community. It's sort of an inner city environment, and, uh, you know, when he looks out of his church, what he sees are, are drug addicts and homeless people and prostitutes and, and all this kind of stuff. They're not exactly tithing Sunday school teaching geek and material, and yet that's who he has to work with. He looks at that, and so they're trying to figure out how to reach their community. And, you know, some people said, well, okay, well, we can reach the homeless. Like, you know, that, that's okay. We have one or two homeless people. And we can have one or two maybe drug addicts that get saved. But when they started talking about reaching the prostitutes from the red light district, that was a little bit awkward. People were like, well, I don't know if we want those kind of women in our church. Well, if you don't reach those kind of women in his community, there's not many other people to reach. And so you have to ask yourself, are we willing to reach out to people who might have spiritual leprosy, well, what did Jesus do? Jesus reached out to them. And so we must ask ourselves, if we're going to reach people in our community, are we willing to reach people who have serious issues? Now, it won't be clean. It won't be all cool and, and neat and tidy. Oh, it'll have, some, it'll have some messes with it. It'll have some struggles. I was chatting with a group the other day at one of our churches uh, that has a real strong reach, uh, ministry to homeless people. And you know what they have the hardest thing keeping? Are you ready for this? They have the hardest thing keeping toilet paper in their bathrooms because homeless people don't have a home. And so when they use the bushes, they need toilet paper. And so they come to the church for some meeting. And when they leave, they think they take the toilet paper with them. And so they had to decide as a church, do we love homeless people more than we love toilet paper. For some people in the church, that was actually a challenge. For other people, it wasn't. But for some, it was. Spending time with people who have serious issues, it can be costly in time and energy. Some people will not appreciate our efforts. Uh, there will always be someone in the church who won't appreciate us bringing those kinds of people and fill in the blank with whatever you think those kinds of people are. There will always be those who will not appreciate that. But that is part of the cost of being on mission for the Lord. Are we willing to pay the cost in time, in energy, and perhaps even in our reputation as a church? 
Uh, some of you know that before I came to the Baptist Convention, I was a pastor in Vermont. Uh, I was in Barrie, Vermont, which has been hit very heavily with the opioid epidemic. And we had a lot of families from lots of different struggled situations. We had a huge youth group. Uh, actually, our youth group was almost as big as our church. We had about 120 kids coming on Wednesday night to the youth group, and they were all messed up. And one day, this older gentleman from a different church came to visit me. He said, Pastor, I've come to tell you about a terrible rumor that is spreading around town about your church. And I was thinking, oh, great. What is it now? And so I said, well, what is it, Ken? What's the terrible rumor? He said, well, the terrible rumor is, is that you will let anyone come to your church, even all the messed up kids. I kept waiting for him to tell me the terrible part. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, what a wonderful thing that around town our reputation is terrible that anybody can come and some people consider that to be terrible now it did keep some families away there were some families that were looking for a perfect youth group for their perfect child to go to and continue to be perfect and we probably were not the youth group for them but if you had a messed up kid which was most of the kids in town we were the youth group for you now it was a struggle and it was hard because they I don't know if they took toilet paper out of the bathrooms, but they sure put a wear and tear on the building. I remember one Sunday, and I was trying to think through it. As a pastor, you think through these things like, hey, I want to do this ministry, but how are we going to figure out how to pay for it all? I remember one particular Sunday, this particular fellow showed up. Now, he was well, we lived in a small community. He was well known in town. He was one of the doctors, a medical doctor in town. And he was very active at a different church in town, a wonderful church, a good church. And he came, and I thought, well, that's odd that he's here, but you know, you speak to him, you're polite. Well, the next Sunday he came back again. The next Sunday he came back again. So after about the third Sunday, I said, I won't say his name because I know we're on Facebook Live, but I said to the doctor, I said, so tell me, uh, Dr. Blank, I said, I, I know you're really active at such and such church. It's a good church. I'm friends with your pastor. What's going on? He said, I heard about all the stuff you're doing here, about all the young people whose lives are being changed. And I decided I wanted my tithe money to stop paying for endless rounds of renovation on an already perfect church building, and I wanted it to be invested in changing people's lives he said so count me in I was like praise God who would have thought that reaching a bunch of messed up teenagers gets you a doctor who tithes but bring them on <laughs> amen some people will not understand our efforts but that is part of the cost we must be willing to try well look at verse 7 a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of a very expensive fragrant oil she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, to understand this verse, you have to understand that it was custom during that time to anoint the guest of honor with a few drops of fragrant oil. It was their way of showing honor to the guest. Now, that's not really the way we do it today. You know, if I come to your house for dinner, look, please don't pour any oil on my head. It's greasy enough as it is, all right? I have a hard time keeping my hair clean. I don't need you adding to the oil, okay? But in this culture, that culture of that time, that was the way they showed honor. It's interesting that Jesus had come to the house of Simon, and Simon had not showed him this honor. We don't know exactly why, okay, so we're speculating. But probably it was because Simon did not feel worthy. Simon knew that he was an unclean person, and he probably did not feel worthy of honoring Jesus. Now, we don't know that for sure. I'm speculating a little bit, but that was probably the reason, because it was definitely normal for you to honor your guest in this way. Well, since Simon doesn't do it, this other lady shows up, and she does it. Now, the Gospel of Matthew here does not tell us who the woman was, but the other Gospels tell us that it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. 
Do you remember that story? Remember Lazarus, the brother who died, and Jesus raised him again from the dead? I would think that Mary had some real reasons to want to honor Jesus. She had seen the power of Jesus to literally bring the dead back to life. That was something that had moved her deeply. That's not something that you just get over, okay? And so she wanted to honor Jesus. And when she saw that Simon had not done it, she decided to do it for herself. According to the Gospel of John, Mary used a pound of oil to honor Jesus. Now, normally it would be a few drops, two or three drops. She uses a pound of oil. Now, depending on how you want to do the math and how much you think that a drop is compared to a pound, some scholars say this was a hundred times that was necessary. Uh, some scholars say it was a thousand times than, more than what was necessary. I'll let someone else do the math and figure all that out. Scholars will argue about that forever. Regardless of whether it was a hundred or a thousand times more than was necessary, she was making a very clear point. She was not trying to just do the least that she could do to just honor Jesus. She was trying to go all out and demonstrate extravagant love, extravagant honor, extravagant uh, connection to who Jesus was. Now, the gospel is not so much in this particular gospel, but the other gospels tell us that this oil was worth 300 denarii. Now, most of us don't even know what a denarii is, so that means nothing to us. Basically, 300 denarii is approximately a year's wages for the average worker in that time period. So think in your mind for a moment. How much did you make last year? Uh, if you're on Social Security and that's all you got, you probably made 20000 maybe 22000 23000 uh, If you're still working and you have a job out in the community, 50000 60000 If you're a double-income family and both of you are, you know, have good jobs, 120000 125000 could you imagine giving a year's wages, whatever that number is for you, could you imagine giving a year's wages to honor Jesus because other people failed to do it? It's just staggering to think of what she did. I remember a wonderful story very similar to this. You know, I know this is a story that happened in the Bible times, but I struggle sometimes when I read stories of things that happened 2,000 years ago. I try to find things that happen like right around me to help me kind of bring it to my thing. You know, I don't know, maybe you guys don't have any struggle with that, but I struggle sometimes with that. But I remember when I was living in Vermont and I was the director of our Baptist work there, we had this little small church way up in northern Vermont. It was on a dirt road. Uh, I preached there many, many times. I always thought it was interesting because there was about 30 mailboxes like on the intersection of the two dirt roads. And I always wondered, who did those 30 mailboxes belong to? Because there definitely were not 30 residents anywhere around there. There weren't 30 houses. There might have been five houses, but apparently there were 30 people somewhere because they had mailboxes. So this church was in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road, a very small building, very small congregation, very poor congregation, struggling to survive. They had one of the best pastors we'd ever had in Vermont. His name was John. He was a tremendous pastor, uh, but he had a family. You know, he wasn't a money-hungry guy. If he was money-hungry, he would have never went there to begin with, but he had a family and his sons were about to go to college, and he was just trying to figure out how he was going to live, and the church got into a tight spot where they just couldn't really pay him even the small salary they were paying him, and it was clear that he was going to have to leave. Well, because of the church situation, it was pretty much understood that when he left, probably the church would close. And so they had this big business meeting to discuss it. And they asked me to come, you know, as the leader of the Baptist work there. And so, you know, we talked back and forth about things we could cut out of the budget. Well, you know, there's only so many things you can cut. You know, you start looking at it and you're really not, there's no way to 
to, to cut enough and get a whole salary out of it. It just isn't. So we talked about maybe things they could do to, to increase more money. Well, you know, about 20 people there. Oh, you know, we've, we're all giving as much as we can. We're all doing it. We can't do any more. We can't do any more. And so, you know, you get to the end of the meeting, you thought, well, I, I guess he's going to leave and the church is going to close. I mean, if, if there's nothing to cut and there's no way to give any more money, then I mean, what other, I don't have like a gold brick I can pull out of my pocket and say, surprise. You know, it was just like that. And then Dorothy spoke up. I love Dorothy's story. An older lady living on Social Security. She raised her hand and she said, Pastor, she said, for one year, I will give my entire Social Security check to save this church. Now, I know she had a little bit of money saved up, so, so she was going to not like be destitute for the year, but that's still, that's huge. That was her entire income. And she said, for one year, I'll do it. There was silence in the room for about 30 seconds. And then people who just minutes before said there was no way they could give $1 more suddenly started saying, oh, well, I can give 5000 I can give 8000 15 minutes later, we had enough to keep the pastor. He stayed five more years. That church is still there. The pastor's now moved on, uh, but it's still there, still doing just fine. Because one woman, at one pivotal moment, said, I'm going to be like Mary. I'm going to do something that is astounding. Dorothy's passed on to glory now, but I can't imagine what her mansion must look like in heaven for her sacrifice in that moment. Oh, there are very few Dorothys. There are very few Marys. There are very few people like that left in our world. Far too many Christians have never made any significant sacrifice for Jesus. In fact, in our consumer Christianity culture, increasingly, we rarely even make minor sacrifices for Jesus. Not only do we not give a year's salary, we won't even tithe 10% of our income. As a matter of fact, we oftentimes give more to the, to the waitress as a tip than what we put in the offering plate. And I'm not for giving waitresses cheap tips. Give them very generous tips, okay? But I think it's interesting that we give her 15 or 20% and we put a $5 bill in the offering. Now, if you're a poor person, a $5 bill is a lot of money. But if you're a double-income family, both professionals, I'd be embarrassed to put in a $5 bill. We pay more for that when we go to Starbucks to buy our coffee. And yet somehow we think the church is supposed to function on that. We have become a people who want to be served by the church of Jesus instead of serving Jesus through the church. Somehow we think it's all about us. Imagine if everyone took that attitude. There would not be much of a church left very quickly. Now you might be thinking, boy, Terry, you're being kind of hard on us. It's because I am so tired of going to churches who tell me there's no way they can do more for the Lord. And I'm thinking to myself, really? Because I just walked through your parking lot, and there's a couple of Lexuses and some Lincoln Navigators out there, and the people who drive those cars, <laughs> a Lincoln Navigator is a $75,000 vehicle. Don't tell me that we can't do more, because we can. We've just chosen not to. People want to be served by the church instead of serving the church of Jesus. And my friends, we will never reach Haverhill. We will never reach America with that kind of attitude. Okay, so I won't get invited back next year, but I understand. That's all right. That's the risk that we take for talking about things like this. Mary's commitment cost her a great deal of money. And it's going to cost a lot of money if we're going to reach New England with the gospel. You know those 30 campus ministers who are reaching 9,000 college students? We have to raise the money for every one of those salaries every year. And it's expensive. But for 9,000 college students to hear the gospel, it's worth every single penny. 
It's amazing what we can do if we just pull together and do it. The commitment to reaching an entire region for Christ, it's going to cost a lot of money, especially in unique areas where challenges are great and the resources are scarce. Are we willing to pay the financial price to reach our community for Christ? I believe the time has come for us to answer that question and to decide if we're willing to pay the price. Well, look at the next set of verses, verses 8 and 9. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. I'm pretty sure I've been in that committee meeting. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. As soon as Mary did this amazing, incredibly generous thing for Christ, the naysayers started complaining. Now, we won't ask for a show of hands, but every church I've ever been in has a naysayer committee. They're not nominated by the nominating committee. They're self-nominated, okay? But every church I've ever been in has a naysayers committee. And if something big, now, as long as you do something small, it's okay. Small stuff's good. Small stuff's accepted. But if you do something big, now the naysayer committee goes to work because we can't do something big because it might upset the apple cart. It might change the status quo. They might actually expect me to give more time, energy, or money. And I don't know if I want to do that. So the naysayer started in just as soon as she did something big. They attacked her reputation and they said that she was wasteful. You know, if we start spending significant amounts of money and time and energy on mission work, we can expect some complaints as well. You know, we've got some work going on. I'm so thankful for our Baptist in Massachusetts and in Connecticut. You know, in Massachusetts and Connecticut, if you just look at the statistics, okay, we have much higher incomes here in Massachusetts and in Connecticut than we do in northern New England. One year ago today, I was in Presque Isle, Maine, so far away that I had to buy a plane ticket to get there unless I wanted to spend 12 hours in the car each direction, which wasn't going to work. I was in Presque Isle, Maine, a little tiny church there, the only gospel-preaching church for miles in any direction that the giving of people in Connecticut and Massachusetts are keeping propped up in this place in Maine. Now, some people would say it's a waste to keep that church in Presque Isle, Maine propped up. If you were a resident of Presque Isle, Maine, and you'd watched one church after another close up and be gone, and there was so little of the gospel left, you wouldn't think it was waste. You would rejoice that some more affluent brothers and sisters in the Baptist Convention from Massachusetts and from Connecticut gave generously. We have a church in Boston that gives more money to the cooperative program than every church in Vermont combined. Praise God. For that church. You say, well, they must be rich. They are, but they could spend their money on a lot of other things. They have three parking spaces at their church, and they've talked about buying a parking lot, but they realize that if they did that, <laughs> they'd have to stop giving to missions. So they say, ride the metro or park three blocks away. We're going to keep giving to missions. That's the kind of sacrifice we must have. Now, these, the, these people here, they began to complain about Mary. Instead of rejoicing about what God was doing, they began to be angry about Mary's sacrifice. They were indignant. They were angry. Why this waste, they said. And believe me, I've been in those committee meetings, and I've heard all the same talk. Uh, the disciples said that the reason they were upset was because the money could have been given to the poor. That's what, that was the excuse that they gave. Now, it's important for us to know that Jesus does expect us to help the poor and this passage in no way undermines Jesus's commands to help the poor so please don't somehow interpret that in the scripture that's not what the scripture says but if you look over in John chapter 12 verse 6 we find out that the disciples who were saying hey we could sell this and we could help the poor really didn't care about the poor at all in John chapter 12 verse 6 it says that they used to put their own hand in the bag and get whatever they wanted to out to help themselves 
So I guess they were just figuring that they were the poor and they were helping themselves. You know, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how much we can convince ourselves that spending more money on ourselves is the best thing to do with our money. But that is not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is to sacrifice and to give so that others can hear the gospel and others can be taken care of and others' needs can be met. And at some point along the way, we must ask ourselves, are we willing to do that or not? Well, we get to verse 13. And after all this indignation and all this, oh, it helped the poor, we should have done this and that and whatever, you know. Here's what Jesus said. I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has been done will also be told in memory of her. You see, this was a pivotal moment for the gospel. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was on his way to be crucified. This was drawing to the end. This was at the very end of his ministry. It was a pivotal moment. And what Mary did was a part of that larger story. She was preparing his body. I'm not sure she even realized it, but she was preparing his body for burial. It was one of those once-in-a-lifetime moments, and Mary seized it. She did not let that once-in-a-lifetime moment pass her by. And Jesus said that anywhere the gospel would be proclaimed, Mary's noble act would be remembered. And here we are, 2,000 years later, on a completely different continent, in a completely different culture, in a completely different language, still remembering this one woman's sacrificial act. By the way, remember the story of the church in Vermont where Dorothy sacrificed for a year? Never since then, ever since then, they have never had a threat of their church closing because they remember Dorothy's sacrifice. Even though she's gone on to glory and not there anymore, they remember. And they make sure when they have their annual business meeting that their budget is fully subscribed. Now, it'll never be a big budget. They'll never be a big church. They're on a dirt road. But they've never gotten so broke that they almost closed again because people remember the sacrifice of someone who cared. Brothers and sisters, I believe that we are living in a pivotal time in history. Our nation is at a spiritual crossroads. And New England plays a strategic role in shaping the direction for the rest of the country. And New England is very non-evangelized. And because we are so non-evangelized in New England, that is impacting the rest of the country. Do you realize that every single one of our Supreme Court justices was educated in New England? Now, one of them graduated in a school. They transferred and graduated somewhere else. But they all got their education in New England. Do you know that all of our presidents, for, except for the current one, who I don't know if he went to college at all. That, oh, sorry, that was, never mind. Forget that. Erase that. Anyway, take that off of whatever. Anyway, uh, all of our presidents, other than the current one, were all educated in New England all the way back for like 40 years. What am I saying? I'm saying that the movers and shakers of America get their education in New England. And while they're here for that six, seven, eight years, they are inundated with not only non-Christian but anti-Christian propaganda that they then take with them to the rest of the country. If we could figure out how to reach New England for Christ, revival would come to America. It would. Revival would come to our nation because our nation is influencing the rest of the country. We have all these Ivy League schools. We have the business leaders. We have the cultural centers. They're all coming here, and we have an opportunity to change the nation by changing New England. We are at a pivotal time, but it's going to cost a lot of time. It means we're going to have to reorganize our priorities and our schedules. It's going to cost a lot of energy. 
And it's going to cost a lot of money to reach New England. Are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to reorganize our time and the way we use our skills and our abilities, the way we use our money to reach New England so that we can reach America with the gospel? That's a question that we must answer. Well, what's the cost of reaching our community for Christ? Well, first, it's spending time with people who are really messed up by the sins of the world. Listen, instead of having an evangelism committee meeting in the back office, I say get in the church van, or if you don't have a church van, get in somebody's van and drive around your community about 9 o'clock at night. See what's going on on the streets at 9 o'clock at night. And that's who we need to be reaching with the gospel. Go down to the courthouse or to the police station and just sit in the parking lot for a while and watch the people coming in and out. Those are the people who need to be reached with the gospel. Oh, they're not all neat and tidy. It'll be, you may have to up your toilet paper budget. You might have to. But if that's what it takes to reach this community for the gospel, should we? We're going to have to invest significant time, energy, and money in ministry and missions. But what's the result? Well, the result is the salvation of the lost, the strengthening of existing churches, the planting of new churches, and the gospel being proclaimed in ways that will leave a legacy for future generations. Listen, I don't know the whole history of this church, but with a church as old as this one, there's some history. Somewhere throughout the way, there are some Marys and there are some Dorothys. If you get your church minutes and you start reading through them, you're going to see some people who sacrifice time and energy and money to get you to where you are today. Listen, this building wasn't built, okay, in three weeks on a weekend with leftover stuff. Okay, look at it. This is an amazing facility God has given you. And this is just one room. You got just keep going back. It's like a maze. You got rooms downstairs. Some of you've never been in. Anyways, it's amazing to me the stuff the, the stuff that you have. It's incredible. God has given us this. Are we willing to say how do we use everything we have for the gospel? Are we willing to pay the price? Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? And maybe as you have listened to these words, perhaps the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. How do you use your time? How do you use your energy? How do you use your money? Have you ever sacrificed anything significant for this church? Significant in your time? Significant in your energy level? Significant in your money? Have you ever sacrificed anything to help this church move forward? Are you willing to pay the price so that the loss can be saved? Churches can be stronger. New churches can be started. And the church will still be here for future generations. Lord, I pray right now in the quietness of this moment that your Holy Spirit might speak to our hearts. Lord, everyone in this room is at different places in their life. Some are on the, the young, end, uh, young side of things just getting started. Others are on the, the other end where they pretty much have lived their life and they're uh, waiting for you to take them home for glory. And then there's everything in between. Uh, Lord, this is a, a very multi-generational church. I pray, Lord, that right now we would hear your call, that whatever point in our life is, we would be willing to say, like Mary, I will sacrifice of my time, of my energy, of my reputation, of my money, so that the gospel might go forth to reach this community for Jesus, to reach New England for Jesus, that would reach the world for Jesus. May we hear your call. May we heed what you're saying to us in these moments. We pray this in your holy name.